Today we're going to look at an essential doctrine in the Bible called the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is essentially that there is one God in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity is is one of the most important doctrines in your Bible. It is one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. Like I said, it's an essential. Among the religions of the world, though, the Christian faith is unique in making this particular claim that God is one, yet there's three persons who are God. No other religion that I'm aware of does that. And so in doing this, it presents what seems on the surface to be something that's totally self-contradictory. One God, but three persons? And and the other thing that uh, creates issues is that this doctrine is not overtly and explicitly stated in Scripture. In fact, you're not even going to find the word Trinity in your Bible unless it's in a footnote or in the back somewhere. So we've got to ask the question, is the doctrine of the Trinity crucial? If you don't even find the word in the Bible, well, I, I hate to start here, but, but sadly, too many people have ignored the doctrine of the Trinity kind of put it on the back burner and, and don't think of it as something that's crucial. So i I got to set the stage and show you that it is crucial. It is very important. The doctrine of the Trinity is, is crucial for Christianity for several reasons, and I've got them on the screen here for you. Number one, it, 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 it's crucial because it's concerned with who God is. Anything that talks about who God is has got to be crucial. How do we know who God is? Well, the Bible tells us it's concerned with what God is like and how God works, how God is to be approached. We know He can be approached, but how, how should He be approached? And the belief that you and I actually hold about the Trinity will also have a huge impact on the doctrine of Christology, on the doctrine of Christ. So as we build up to Easter, we think about who Jesus is, His, his person and His work. Well, You're not going to understand his person and his work without this crucial foundation, the doctrine of the Trinity. The position we take on the Trinity is going to answer several practical questions for us. Okay, if you haven't thought about this doctrine much, let me, let me just tell you some things you need to know about. Well, first of all, who, who are we to worship? Who are we to worship? I know you're going to say God. But, you know, some people will say, well, we only worship God the Father. But then you get some people that say, well, I worship Jesus Christ. And then you may even have some that say, well, I worship the Holy Spirit. So who are we to worship? Are you to worship only God the Father? Or are we to worship all of them as one God? These are important issues. Another one to think about is, to whom are we to pray? To whom are we to pray? Well, we'll address that later on. This is, by the way, part one. Lord willing, next week we'll look at part two. Another important question is this. Is the work of each person to be considered in isolation from the work of the other persons of the Trinity? Are they just doing their own thing, in other words? Or may we think of, for example, the atoning death of Jesus Christ as somehow the work of God the Father as well? Is there a connection there? Okay, if you don't understand the Trinity, you're gonna you'll be scratching your head on these questions. Another practical question is this: Should the Son be thought of as the Father's equal in essence, or should he be relegated to a somewhat lesser status? Is is God the Father up here, and then do you have God the Son somewhere down on the second shelf or the third shelf? Or or are they all on the same shelf? Well, we'll look at that. Well, to start with, we really need a a working definition, and the one I'm going to use is Dr. Grudem's definition of the Trinity. Here's what he has to say about the doctrine of the Trinity. He says, God eternally exists as three persons... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. 
Now, we'll, what I want to do now is I'm going to take his definition and kind of break that down into parts and think about that. All right. First of all, well, we got to ask the question: Where is the Trinity revealed? Where is it revealed? Because you're not going to find it in your Bible, the, the word Trinity. So where is it revealed? Well, it's progressively revealed in Scripture. Okay? Uh, you're, like I said, you're not going to find the word Trinity, but you're going to find the concept, if you will. The, the idea is found there. It's uh, taught many places, including the Old Testament, not just your New Testament. I want to take a look at some of these passages, all right? Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't, I've got the passages on the screen here for you. But Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of your Bible, we have a passage that alludes to the Trinity. It's, it's, not, it's not obvious. It's not one of those kind of passages that just hits you between the eyeballs and says, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm talking about the Trinity, <laughs> It's not one of those glaring neon signs that just shines brightly in your eyeballs and says, I'm talking about the Trinity. So what I've done is underlined the pronouns. Pronouns, hopefully you know your grammar well enough. Pronouns modify nouns. And in this case, the noun is referring to the Trinity. All right? Look what it says here. God said this. Here's what he said. Let us... Make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, I've underlined those pronouns there for you, because it's very interesting. We have one God speaking here, but he's using plural pronouns. Is God schizophrenic? Okay, you can laugh. That's a joke. All right. No, God is not schizophrenic. He's not doing the Gollum thing. You know, you ever seen Gollum in Lord of the Rings? He he talks to himself because he's he's Gollum, and then he's another person. So he's carrying on this conversation with you know. If you've ever watched or read Lord of the Rings, no, this is not what God is doing here. He's showing his Trinity, his triunity. He is one God, but multiple persons. He says, "Us, our." And so here, in this very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, we have an indication of the plurality of persons in God Himself. We're not told how many persons. It could be two, three, four, five, multiple, right? When it's us, that you don't know how many, right? That's pretty obvious. But it's implied that there's obviously more than one person involved here. The New Testament has a more complete revelation of the Trinity. So I want to look at a couple of passages here that explicitly, clearly, I think, state this for us. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 in your Bibles says this. When Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold... A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I've underlined the words Jesus and Spirit of God and this voice from heaven for excuse me, for a specific reason. I, w- I want to point out the, the three different persons of the Godhead here. Here at this one moment here, this one moment of time, we have three members of the Trinity. They're performing three distinctive activities. Jesus, of course, is what? What's going on with him? He's he's the one being baptized. You have God the Father. He's the one speaking from heaven. It's his voice. And then you have God the Holy Spirit descending from heaven. And what is he doing? He's actually empowering Jesus Christ for ministry. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. Well, another more obvious passage we can look at is in Matthew 18. Sorry, not Matthew 18. Matthew 28, verse 19. says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, why am I showing you this verse? Because I want you to notice in this one verse here, we actually see the word name 
underlined the word name there for you because if you're paying attention to your grammar there, notice it's singular. If it was plural, it would say names. But it's not plural. It's singular, name, one God, but how many persons? Three persons, all mentioned here under the one name. That's pretty clear testimony to the doctrine of the Trinity, is it not? We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of this one God. Well, how can we summarize the Bible's teaching on the Trinity? That's, that's a hard one to do. We have a, a great doctrinal statement that we need to know and be familiar with, but you could summarize it essentially into three parts. In one sense, by the way, we're, we're, you and I will never be fully able to understand God. He is incomprehensible. Okay, You understand that. You'll never fully understand Him. The doctrine of the Trinity for all eternity will be something you're never going to understand to the extent that God understands. And, and you should be okay with that. Okay, don't, don't freak out because you don't understand everything about God. God hasn't revealed everything about Himself. He's incomprehensible. But there are some things that God has revealed about Himself that we can know, and you should study and try to understand. For example, God is three persons. Okay, that, again, that might be hard to understand, but God says it, therefore we have to believe it. And number two, each person is fully God. Now, there's various heresies that have come from, from each one of these summary statements, which we'll look at in just a moment. But you need to know these statements. Be familiar with them. So that when, when stuff shows up on the bookshelf, whether it's the Christian bookstore or the library, or you see something on a blog or on TV or in a movie, the, the warning light should be going off in your brain saying, beep, 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 there's heresy. Okay, for example... Any of you ever read The Shack? Anybody read The Shack? One of the most popular books a couple years ago there ever, there ever has been. Sadly, it's even showed up in Christian bookstores. That book is filled with heresy. they they got three different gods, and some of them, by the way, are women. One of them is an Asian woman. Another is an African woman, if I remember correctly. Okay? So, they got, got, so, so it just makes a mockery of, out of God. Sadly, there were, there were Christians all around the world, in fact, uh, proclaiming the glorious uh, beauty of this book. Christians were saying, I, I understand God better. Whoa. Hello, folks. Okay, do, do we understand the doctrine of the Trinity or, or Trinity or not? Okay, sadly, many Christians do not. And they were sucked into the vortex of heresy. All right, so we have God in three persons. Each person's fully God, yet there is only one God. All right? So be aware. This, this world and Satan and your own indwelling sin are your enemies. They're going to do everything to distract and, and to, to get you to believe false teaching. So let's look at those, those three summary statements for a moment, okay? Now, the first one there... Is there is, is God three persons? Is God three persons? Giving you a really good uh, Trinity diagram here to look at. Uh, th this might be helpful. It's helpful to me. We, we see here that... Uh, for, let me just point a few things out in this diagram. Number one, of course, God the Father is not the Son. They are distinct persons. It also means that the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are also distinct persons. The Holy Spirit's not the Son. Son's not the Holy Spirit. Son's not God the Father. Does that make sense? Okay, that's, that's what you see in that out, cir outward circle. But within that, we see God smack dab in the middle there. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they're distinct persons. Okay? If you don't understand that, you're going to develop a strain of heresy. So they're distinct. These distinctions are seen in a number of ways in the Bible. You say, well, prove it to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, how, how do we know that these are distinct persons? Well, for example, if you look at John chapter 1, 
uh, in your Bible or on the screen here, it says this. In the beginning was the Word. Well, we got to stop there for a moment because immediately some people say, well, who's the Word? Well, you got to go down to verse 14, get the context of John chapter 1 to know who the Word is. Verse 14 said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became flesh about 2,000 years ago, and He dwelt among us, right? So the Word is Jesus, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Again, we know the Word here is Jesus. You read the context, all the way, particularly from verse 9 to 18, we know it's Jesus. But it says that the Word was with God. He was with God. It's showing a a distinction here from God the Father. For example, I know the Bible says my wife and I are one flesh. And this is a bad illustration of the Trinity, a real bad illustration, but but bear with me, okay? The Bible says we're one flesh, right? But we're, we're distinct persons, okay? And so I can say, hey, I went on a date with my wife. But that doesn't mean I'm my wife, right? I'm not my wife. I went on a date with my wife. I'm a distinct person. She's a distinct person for me. I was with her. The word with is showing a distinction. Does that make sense? So it's saying that this word, Jesus Christ, was distinct from God the Father. He was with Him, but He is not God the Father. All right, let's look at another one. John 14, 26. And in this case, we have Jesus speaking here. Notice what Jesus says. Very interesting. He's showing a distinction here. And Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we have a distinction with all three persons of the Godhead here. We have Jesus saying, The Holy Spirit is the Helper. And who is He sent by? Who sends Him? God the Father sends Him. And it's done in whose name? It's He's sent in Jesus' name. And the Holy Spirit is doing something different from the other two persons of the Godhead. He's doing what? He's teaching you all things. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that Jesus said. I hope you see the distinction there in those three persons. They're doing different things. They're not the same. So here we see God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Son's not the Holy Spirit. They are separate persons. Well, another question we need to ask then is, is each person fully God? If they're distinct persons, are they fully God? Well, I I hope I don't need to prove this one to you. The first point is that God the Father is definitely clearly God. Do I need to prove that one? I hope not. If I do, please come talk to me later. I mean, from the very first verse in the Bible, it should be obvious, right? In the beginning, God. That's what it says. In the beginning, God. You don't need to prove that. You just have to believe it by faith. God says He was there. (laughs) All right? So, So He's fully God. But the Bible also says that the Son is fully God. As in the Son, by the way, I'm I'm referring to Jesus Christ. Now, I know John chapter 1 is highly debated by the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I'm not afraid of that. Look what John chapter 1 says, showing that Jesus is fully God here. It says, in the beginning was the Word. So we see that The Word, Jesus Christ, was in the beginning. And in the beginning, before creation, He was there with God, distinct from God, and it says that the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, there was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So here we have Christ, referred to, of course, as the Word. The Greek word there is logos. 
He is the Logos, the Word of God. And John says two interesting statements about Jesus here. He says he was with God, so he's distinct, but he at the same time being distinct is God. For he was God. By the way, that he still is. <laughs> so you see the distinction as well as a unity. And, and he is, by the way, fully God. He's not a part God. He is fully God. So we have God the Father, who is, of course, fully God. Jesus the Son is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is also fully God. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is, is classified on an equal level with the other members of the Trinity. For example, we already read Matthew 28, verse 19 which says that we're to go and make disciples, and we, we baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, classified together here on an equal footing. And, and the reason for that is because they are. They're all fully God. There's not some different level going on there. Well, that begs another question. Is there only one God? <laughs> because when you start seeing statements in the Bible like Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, some people ask, well, okay, is there only one God then? Or are there three gods? <laughs> well, Scripture is clear that there's only one God. There is one and only one God. The three different persons of the Trinity, though, are one in essence or substance. They're in other words, their essential nature is one. God is only one being. There's not three gods. There's only one God. Let me just give you a couple verses to show this. Uh, one coming from the Old Testament and then another coming from the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So there in that verse, you, have a, you see the one God, but then you see two persons of the Trinity with distinct persons there. Well, sadly, there are some errors that we need to avoid. You say, what are those errors that we need to avoid? These are some big errors. In fact... These are the kind of errors, by the way, if you ever come across them, they are the sort of things that separate churches. They separate denominations and religions and sects and cults from each other. And, and so they should. By the way, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I have been following, a. there's a big to-do going on in the United States over the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, it has to do with the first error that we're going to look at because there's a very well-known evangelical leader in the United States who actually asked a, a oneness Pentecostal to be a part of his group. Well, in the process, there's other evangelicals who said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this, this guy believes in error. He is a heretic because he doesn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity properly. So anyway, we got all these evangelicals who are separating from this one evangelical leader and this Pentecostal guy, over this doctrine. It's very important, my friends. You need to know about this, all right? So the, the first error is modalism. And if you don't know what this is, just hang with me here, okay? But modalism claims that there's one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes. And so you see the word mode in the word modalism. These different forms or modes. Okay? So, so the good thing is they believe there's uh, one, but appears in three different modes. And this teaching, by the way, if you do enough reading in Christian literature, you might find it named as something else. So let me give you the other names here. Uh, it's also called Sabalianism. Uh, of course, named after the teacher Sabalius who lived in Rome during the 3rd century A.D. The other term there for modalism is modalistic monarchism. Monarch being a ruler, like a king, a queen, right? 
So it's basically getting the idea from that the fact there's only one supreme ruler in the universe, which, I mean, that's true, but anyway, those are various names that uh, you might hear heard modalism called. Now, modalism is attractive to some people because it clearly emphasizes the fact of one God. And that's true. There is one God, all right? We can't dispute that. However, however, there's a big however, the, the fatal shortcoming of modalism is the, the fact that it denies the personal relationships within the Trinity. They don't see those personal relationships such as God and Son and, and the Spirit going on within the Trinity. For example, modalism just so you understand just how important this is and how we need to make distinctions here, modalism loses the heart of the doctrine of the atonement because they don't see the relationships within the Trinity. You can lose the atonement, the doctrine of the atonement, where God, atonement means at one men, where God makes us at one. He reconciles us to Himself, brings us who are His enemies back to Himself. And so... What we have here is that uh, in the doctrine of the atonement, God sent His Son to be a substitutionary sacrifice for those who could not pay the penalty of sin. And then the Son bore the wrath of God in our place. He took our place. Jesus took your place if you're a believer. You deserve to die on the cross. But Jesus took your place. He paid the penalty of sin. And then the Father saw the suffering of His Son and He was satisfied by what Jesus did. And so you don't have to bear God's wrath because Jesus bore your wrath. Okay. But if you don't believe in, in different relationships, well, well, well then you're not going to... What's at stake here is the atonement. Okay, does that make sense? Well, there's a second big error that you and I need to be aware of. It's called Arianism. Arianism, and if you don't know all this church history stuff, let me encourage you to take the church history class. You'll learn about this stuff. All right, good stuff. Good stuff. You need to know these errors uh, so that hopefully we, we don't repeat these, these heresies. But anyway, Arianism denies the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The term Arianism is derived from a man named Arius, who, by the way, was bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. His views, fortunately, praise God, were condemned at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. What did Arius teach? Well, Arius taught that God the Son was at some point in time created by God the Father. Okay, did you hear me? He was created. That's what he believed. By God. He was created by God the Father, and that before that particular time, the Son didn't even exist. And by the way, neither did the Holy Spirit. And so he believed that only God the Father existed. And so the Son and the Spirit, therefore, as a result of this belief, cannot be equal to God the Father. If he's a created being, he can't be equal to God the Father. Support for the Arian view, you say, by the way, where in the world does that come in the Bible? <laughs> uh, it comes from several places, but one of the big ones that uh, needed to be addressed in the church of Colossia was Colossians 1, verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Notice the word firstborn. Because you get some people... The, I'll call them the Arians. The Arians, they, they take that word firstborn and they, they really run a long ways with that ball. Firstborn to them implies the Son was at some point created by the Father. Is, but is that what the word means? Can you take that verse to prove Arianism? And, by the way, if, if that is true of God the Son, then... It also has to be true of God the Holy Spirit then, doesn't it? However, the good news is, the text does not require us to believe the Arian position. 
Because the word firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was created. The word firstborn there is referring to Christ as having the privileges of authority and rule. Christ has the privileges of authority and rule, which are the privileges belonging to the firstborn. That's the point. It's not talking about a firstborn being created. As you know, in Bible times, firstborns had had privileges and responsibilities coming with that position that the second and third and fourthborn did not have. Well, one of the, the beauties of studying church history is you learn about church creeds. And various church councils addressed all of these heresies like Arianism. Uh, and and the, one of the big ones, it, the, uh, the Nicene Council, was to draft up the Nicene Creed in 325, and it affirmed that Christ was not made. They got it right. And here's what they said. Quote, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Very important words. Begotten, but not made. Because the Arians, they, that was another proof text. They, they used that word begotten in verses like John 3.16 to say, see, Jesus was made. No, he wasn't made. He's, that's not what it means. But anyway... Notice what it says. He is being of one substance with the Father. Uh, praise God for church councils. They, they did us a great service. <laughs> uh, who knows where we'd be if, if they hadn't come up with this. Very, very helpful. So, I hope you can see that Arianism is a heresy. Arianism was a heresy that did not accept the full deity of Christ and by the way, didn't accept the full deity of the Holy Spirit either. It was non-Trinitarian and was very destructive to the Christian faith in the Christian church. <clears throat> Sadly, it divided the church. Uh, the church shouldn't be divided over essentials. There should be unity in the essentials. Yes, there can be diversity in non-essentials, but this is an essential. They should have agreed. Sadly, there, there were false teachers as there are false teachers today. So this false teaching, by the way, you say, has it gone away? No, sadly, it has not gone away. And we still have false teachers today teaching this stuff from church pulpits. Uh, one of those groups would be the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are the modern-day Arians. They don't believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So you need to be aware of that. Now they're going to come to you, they're going to talk like they're your Christian brother and Christian sister, and they're not. They don't, if, they don't, if you don't believe in the Trinity, then you're not a Christian. That's how essential this doctrine is. Okay? You can't be a Christian and ignore this essential doctrine. God has revealed Himself this way. All right, so there's, those are a couple errors. There's, there's other ones that we need to quickly address. And there's the, the error of subordinationism. Say, what is that? Well, think of the word subordinate. If you're subordinate, it means you're under, right? You're not on the same level. All right, subordinationism held that the Son was not created, so they got that part right. But it denies that the Son is equal to the Father in being and attributes. So he's not on the same level. It teaches that the Son was somehow inferior in subordinate. Well, though, although there are many church leaders that contributed to the formation of a correct doctrine of the Trinity, you need to be aware of one man. Probably the most influential man that helped us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity is Athanasius. Praise God for this wonderful man. Now, I'm not about to say he's perfect because he's not. He's a sinner like you and me. But God used this man in a great way for, for his cause. 
when he went to the council of Nicaea, he was only 29 years old, and that was in the year 325. His keen mind and his writing ability allowed him to play a very important role in the influence of the outcome of that council. He eventually became Bishop of Alexandria. Interestingly enough, remember Arius? He was also Bishop in Alexandria. (laughs) Don't you love the the irony and the providence that God had there? But that was in the year 328, just three years after the Council of Nicaea. Though the Arians, remember, they were condemned at the Council of Nicaea. Sadly, there were people who went about still teaching this false doctrine. They refused to stop teaching their views, and they even used their political power throughout the church. And sadly, this this heresy, this false teaching, continued on in church uh, for most of the 4th century. Athanasius became the focal point of the Arian attack. I mean, who who are you going to pick on? If you you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, you, you attack the guy who's who's one of the strongest, the most vocal, the, the, one of the greatest writers on the doctrine of the Trinity. You attack him. And that's what they did. One of the biographers of Athanasius said this, quote, it's on the screen, I think, he was hounded through five exiles embracing 17 years of flight and hiding, but by his untiring efforts, almost single-handedly, Athanasius saved the church from pagan intellectualism, end quote. You ever want to read a good book on him? I've, I've, I've got one in my library. Very interesting. Well, from, from that eventually came, maybe any of you heard of the Athanasius Creed? Good creed, very good creed. You need to read it. You can find it online. The, the Athanasius Creed, by the way, it bears his name, but uh, most people think that he's not the one who actually wrote it but it does stem from him. It's a very clear affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity. It uh, it did gain influence in the church from about the year 400 onward, and it's it's even used in some Protestant churches today. Well, I want to read to you a part of the Athanasius Creed, just so you can can see just how good this is. It is is heartwarming. It's stirring. Doctrine should not be boring, cold and lifeless. Doctrine should cause you to worship God, give you more of a love for God. That's what it should do anyway. But, uh, look, what look what it says here. Here's part of the creed. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. Oh, I love the clarity that Athanasius brings here for us. Praise God for for that. Well, let's look at another error that we need to be aware of, and uh, it is adoptionism. Adoptionism. You say, adoptionism? What's that? Well, (laughs) adoptionism is the view that Jesus lived as an ordinary man up until his baptism, but then God adopted Jesus as his son and gave him supernatural powers. Now, some of you might be thinking, man, that's strange. Never heard that one. <laughs> if you haven't, uh, that's good. Fortunately, it's not that well known. Adoptionists would not think of Christ as eternal. I hope you see a problem with that. Even after Jesus' adoption as the Son of God, they would not think of Him as divine in nature. He's, in other words, He's not fully God but they do think of him as an exalted man. Good teacher, good prophet, but that's about as far as they go. So in this view, uh, I hope you can see the error here. You say, is this view believed today? 
Apparently it is. Apparently it is believed today. Uh, in my reading of this, uh, there's, there's something we need to sit up and take notice about, okay? Lest you and I become adoptionists, all right? Uh, many modern people who think of Jesus as a great man and someone empowered by God, but, but he's not actually divine, he's not actually deity, actually fall into this category here of an adoptionist. Okay? Sadly, there are people who still believe this today. Jesus is a good man. By the way, I would question that, okay? If you ever hear somebody say that Jesus was a good man, but he's not God, you need to, you need to ask them, now wait, wait a minute, hold on here. You're saying he's a good man, but Jesus claimed to be God. If he's not God, then he's a liar. Liars aren't good men. Okay, do you, do you see that reasoning? I hope you do. You need to question them on that. Liars are not good men. Okay, Jesus claimed to be God. So either he's a lunatic, a liar, or he really is what he claimed to be. Well, one way that some people try to explain the biblical teaching about the Trinity is they deny that there is only one God. That's tritheism. Tritheism denies there's only one God. Uh, I don't know if that illustration there helps you or not. You see three circles. You got one representing the Father, the second circle's the Son, third son or third one's the Holy Spirit. Tritheism. Tri meaning three, theism means God. So that's one way you, you can try to reason through some some things you, you might have a hard time understanding in the Bible. The result is you say that God is three persons and each person is fully God. So you got three gods in the process of doing this. Uh, I'm not aware of any modern group that actually advocates tritheism. Uh, but, but again, you and I need to sit up and take notice because if we don't if we don't communicate properly and we don't think about this properly, in a way, you and I could become tritheists. You say, how can that happen? Well, many evangelicals, uh, I hope unintentionally, tend toward this. Uh, some of these people might recognize the distinct persons of the Godhead, but seldom actually think of those distinct persons as a unity. Okay? Uh, we, we can talk about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but if we never talk about those three persons as a unity, as one God, we, we can actually come across as a tritheist then, can't we? So beware, okay? Beware. You say, is the doctrine of the Trinity important? Okay, I mean, you, you've talked about all these errors and these things. But is it actually important? Does, does it mean anything for me today? Okay, This is where the rubber meets the road. Most people just want to know. They, they don't want to care about church history. Sadly, they neglect church history. And in the process, we're doomed to repeat the past. So, is it important to you? You might be wondering, why was the church so concerned about the doctrine of the Trinity? Is it really essential that we hold to the full deity of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? And I have to say, yes, it is. It is, it is crucial. It's essential. It is very important. This particular teaching is foundational to your Christian life. If you don't understand this, there's a lot at stake, okay? There is a lot at stake. And by steak, I'm not referring to the thing you put on your barbecue, okay? I don't mean that kind of steak. I mean, there's a lot... Of, there, there's, this is important, okay? That's the point. There are implications for the very heart of your Christian faith at stake here. You say, okay, all right? I'm with you. What are they? Okay, good. I'm glad you asked that question. Number one, the atonement is at stake. We've already touched on that. The atonement is at stake. The atonement is when God the Father sees a problem, which is our sin. He sends His Son to deal with our sin and the penalty of sin. And God the Father sees His Son suffering. 
and paying the penalty of our sin. And justice is done. Righteousness is, is imputed to believers and satisfaction is accomplished. Reconciliation is now accomplished. The enemies become God's sons. That's atonement. All of that is at stake here in the doctrine of the Trinity. Can, can anything be more important than the Gospel? No, of course not. Of course not. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Gospel is of first importance. In other words, it's the most important thing there is. So, the atonement, since it is part of the Gospel, we see that the Gospel is under attack when these errors start creeping into our lives and into our churches and into books. Movies, for that fact. So, if Jesus is just merely a created being, if God the Father made Jesus at some point in time, and, and in the process, He's not fully God, it's hard to see how He could actually come to earth and bear the full wrath of God against all of our sins. Hard to believe that. In fact, I think it's impossible. So, in other words, my point is the atonement is at stake. At one meant reconciliation. The gospel is at stake here. And that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is an essential, and we must be unified on this. Number two, justification by faith alone is at stake. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is threatened if we deny the full deity of God the Son. This is seen today in the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses and others. By the way, they don't believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Why would they? If you believe that Jesus is a created being, if He's not fully God, why would you believe then in justification by faith alone? Jesus is crucial to that particular doctrine. If Jesus is not fully God, we'd rightly doubt whether we can actually really trust Him to save us completely from our sins. Why? Justification by faith, right? It's by faith alone. Another synonym for faith is trust. Why would you put your trust in someone who is not fully God? You shouldn't. Okay? So justification by faith alone is at stake. And number three, idolatry is at stake. Lest we become idolaters, we need to understand here uh, the, the importance of this doctrine. For example, if Jesus is not God, should we pray to Jesus? Should you pray to Jesus if He's not fully God? You just meditate on that one for a while. Should you worship Jesus if He's not fully God? And the answer is no, in case you don't know the answer. The answer is no. You should not pray to someone who is not fully God. You should not worship somebody who is not fully God. If you do, God calls that idolatry. You have an idol. If Jesus is just some mere creation of God, it would be idolatry then to worship Him. Number four. Say, what's at stake? Well, we got the atonement at stake, justification by faith alone at stake, idolatry is at stake, but another one is important here. The independence and personal nature of God are at stake. If there's no Trinity, then there is no interpersonal relationships going on in the Godhead. If there's only one person, who's he communicating and dealing with, right? If there's nobody else in the Trinity, there's only one God, just one person, then there's no interpersonal relationships going on there. Well, that would create a problem. So without personal relationships, then it's difficult to see how God could be genuinely personal. You got somebody, if you think of God as, as some lonely hermit for all of eternity, then you're, you don't have an accurate representation of God. 
God was not a lonely hermit. Okay? Sadly, there are too many people who think, well, God was lonely, and that's why he created earth. And then he had to put animals and people on the earth. Because he was so lonely. I mean, for all eternity, it was just him. How boring would that be? Well, my friends, God was never lonely. He never does get lonely. He's not dependent upon his creation. Okay, He didn't have to create things so that he would stop being lonely. <laughs> so if you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, then you could, you could come to that conclusion. Well, that God was lonely because it was just him. He had nobody else to talk to and deal with. Well, praise God that wasn't the case. God the Father could talk to the Son, and the Son could talk to the Spirit, and the Spirit could talk to the Father. They all had each other. They didn't need anything else. Well, then you have, number five, the unity of the universe. The whole unity of the universe is at stake. If there's not perfect plurality, three persons, and perfect unity, oneness in God himself, then what hope is there in our lives, in our churches, and in this country, in this world, for any kind of unity at all? If even God himself cannot have three persons in one God, then, then there's, there's no hope. There's no hope at all. Because this universe is very diverse, right? There are all kinds of diverse elements in our universe that, that, that just makes life complicated, doesn't it? You know, if you, you have children, you're married, you know, if you have to talk and deal with somebody else, whether that's in your family or at work or at church or wherever, immediately that diversity is going to make issues, is it not? Can create problems easily. Well, praise God that, yes, he might be three persons, but there is unity, perfect, complete unity within that plurality. So clearly in the doctrine of the Trinity, the heart of the Christian faith is at stake. It's important, my friends. In fact, it's essential and crucial. We need to believe it. We need to teach it. We need to do as Jude talked about in verse 3 and 4. Stand and fight against the false teaching. Earnestly contend for the faith. This is the faith, my friends. Are you earnestly contending for it? My friend, if, you're a, if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, if you've never believed in the Trinity, well, then you're not a believer, okay? You, you must believe that God is three persons, but He's only one. This is how He has revealed Himself. So my friend, if you've never put your faith in this kind of a God, and only in this God and not your works, my friend, today could be the day. Today can be the day when you know for sure that if you were to die today, you'd immediately be in God's presence in heaven. 